Welcome back to My Take, a podcast that discusses current events in nutrition, the business side of the health and fitness industry, and a little bit of everything in between. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the thrifty gene, why interest rates and asset deflation is a perfect storm, and why so many businesses are starting to close, how you can only control your response, and that's where the power lies, and why you shouldn't forget to enjoy the ride. So let's get into the show. One of the most interesting ideas in nutrition is this idea of the thrifty gene. Essentially, what this idea relates to is that humans evolved in a time where we lived in periods of feast and famine. And as such, our bodies have adapted mechanisms such that we can become thrifty and store extra energy that comes in and hold on to that for times of famine. This concept suggests that in some people, dieting results in less weight loss and that periods of overeating likely lead to more weight gain in some people than in others. The popular media has kind of morphed this idea into something along the lines of some people can't lose weight when dieting because they have a thrifty gene. There's actually been a substantial amount of research into this topic over the last few years, and a few recent studies have really helped us understand what this idea is and how we can interpret it. Now, normally an article or podcast like this would start with a full definition of thriftiness. However, I kind of want to introduce the general concept of two ideas first and explain it in detail at the end. It'll make a little more sense. Thriftiness can be defined as a set of adaptations or lack of adaptations that the body goes through to minimize weight loss during periods of restriction and to maximize storage during periods of excess. Spendthrift can be defined as a set of adaptations or lack of adaptations that the body goes through to maximize weight loss during periods of restriction and to minimize storage during periods of excess. Think about this in terms of financials, right? Imagine you have periods where you have very low income, right? Are you going to save your money? Are you going to cut your expenses? And during periods where you are making a lot of money, are you still going to keep your expenses low so you can maximize how much money you're saving, that's thriftiness, right? Spendthrift is, you know, when I'm low on money, I'm just going to decide, hey, debt's debt and just keep racking it up. And when I am fully flush, I'm just going to keep spending because I have money, so why not spend it? It's kind of the same thing as it applies to our body. So can thriftiness explain poor weight loss? Have you ever noticed that many people go on diets, but they do not all see the same results? My guess is you have. While much of that is explained by lack of adherence, poor reporting, and a lot of other factors, there is some evidence that even with proper adherence, people lose weight at different rates. In support of this idea, we go back to a study a few years ago that was done that tracked people during periods of dieting, i.e. calorie deficits, and they examined the rate and amount of weight loss. This study, and I'll link it in the show notes, found that during periods of calorie deficits, some people reduce their energy expenditure. We've talked about this before, how during periods of calorie deficits, people's energy expenditure spontaneously decreases. But some people reduced it more than in others in adaptation to consuming fewer calories. These adaptations, some people dropping their meat more than others, led to different amounts of weight loss during periods of dieting. And ultimately, the findings of the study suggested that people may indeed fall into two different categories, thrifty or spendthrift. 
While this was the primary finding of the study, some of the secondary findings were quite illuminating as well. First, the researchers did two short experiments in which they took people and had them fast for a full day and track their energy expenditure, and then they overfed them by 200% of their daily calorie intake and also tracked their energy expenditure. During these studies, they found that people had a wide range of adaptations to either underfeeding or overfeeding. We've seen these types of results before, especially in the Levine study from 1999. Second, the study examined what factors helped explain the differences in the energy deficit and daily energy expenditure. The researchers found that how a sedentary person was each day and how they responded to the underfeeding or overfeeding explained a large amount of the differences between the two types of people. Essentially, how people responded to a 24-hour feast or famine situation helped explain how well they did with weight loss. But the really interesting part was that the response that they actually measured and that they actually found made a difference was how much they changed their energy expenditure. So the answer to the question of can thriftiness explain poor weight loss appears to be yes, at least in part. And how people adapt their energy expenditure to changes in their energy intake explains at least some of why certain people lose more weight when dieting than other people do. Now, can thriftiness explain weight gain? Based on the findings above, thriftiness can help explain why some people lose more weight than others during similar periods of caloric restriction. Another key question here is, does thriftiness relate to different rates of weight gain among people, especially after periods of dieting? This idea was recently investigated in a paper published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. In this study, researchers took a group of seven men and overfed them for 42 days on a diet that consisted roughly of 50% carbohydrates, 30% fat, and 20% protein, which is fairly similar to a standard American diet in terms of macronutrient ratios. At the start of the study, they also subjected the participants to a 24-hour fasting periods and 24-hour periods of overfeeding and tracked how well they adapted. On average, each participant consumed about 50% more calories than their maintenance levels at baseline and gained about 6% total body weight, or about 4 kilograms, over the 42 days. <clears throat> However, there was a wide range of weight gain, with one individual gaining only 2.5% of total body weight and another percent another gaining 8% of total body weight. Similar to the weight loss study mentioned above, they found that the adaptations to energy expenditure that occurred during the 24-hour fasting test helped explain at least some of the differences between those people who gained a lot of weight compared to those people who gained a small amount of weight. Those who saw the biggest reduction in energy expenditure during the 24-hour fasting test gained the most weight during the 42 days of overfeeding. One of the more interesting findings in this study was that there was a greater increase in daily energy expenditure than was predicted simply by body weight gain, suggesting, as we've discussed before, that there are indeed some defense mechanisms present to defend the body against weight gain during periods of overfeeding. The findings from this study that suggest that there may be different metabolic phenotypes, and that there may indeed be more thrifty phenotypes and more spendthrift phenotypes. The idea of metabolic thriftiness often comes with a lot of extra intellectual baggage that we can probably dispense of and get straight to the core of what it is and what it is not. The idea of being a thrifty phenotype seems to be validated in the literature, but it does not appear to be a binary situation. Rather, it appears on a spectrum from very thrifty to very spendthrift. People can fall anywhere in that spectrum, at least as far as I can tell from the data. 
As far as we know, there's no true thrifty gene. Instead, the phenotype that manifests from the spectrum of phenotypes is polygenic, coming from many genes, and also likely has epigenetic and environmental factors. In truth, the thrifty phenotype is the sum of many different things, including different rates of thermogenesis from food, different hormonal adaptations to dieting, changes in physical activity, etc. The other interesting aspect of many of these findings is that while there is some hormonal and immutable factors that impact our adaptations to dieting and overfeeding, one of the largest levers we have is actually 100% under our own conscious control. It's physical activity. And these studies and other studies examining the thrifty phenotype, the amount of daily energy expenditure assigned to the inherent phenotypes or the things we can't control is fairly small. Even if we over-exaggerate the findings and say that it explains 150 to 200 calories per day, the physical activity can be leveraged to amounts substantially higher than that. For example, in many overfeeding and underfeeding studies, changes in daily physical activity can account for 200, 400, 600, 800 calories a day. So when you place it in the context of dieting for people in the real world, that means that people can actually account for their inherent phenotype and overcome small differences with proper planning, especially through physical activity. <clears throat> people lose and gain weight at different rates. Parts of the difference between people appears to be due to how their body adapts to periods of caloric restriction and or overfeeding. The adaptations that occur are multifactorial, but they can often be summarized in two different phenotypes. One, the thrifty phenotype, in which the sum of the adaptations causes people to lose less weight and gain more weight than others. And two, the spendthrift phenotype, in which the sum of the adaptations causes people to lose more weight and gain less weight than others. These adaptations are partly due to differences in diet-induced thermogenesis, hormonal changes, but mostly physical activity. For all intents and purposes, there are aspects of this that are out of people's control. But physical activity is something that can be a massive lever that shifts people from their natural phenotype. For example, someone with a thrifty phenotype can lose the same amount of weight or greater than someone with a spendthrift phenotype if they consciously increase physical activity to compensate for adaptations. Many people think that this concept is used to identify the fact that some people lose and gain weight at different rates than other people. That's partly true and partly the point of this, but the major point is to highlight that, yes, people respond differently in the magnitude of their response to dieting or weight gain, but largely these differences can be understood and managed primarily through addressing energy expenditure. That's it for the Nutrition Insight. Uh, we will take a quick break. I got to refill my coffee and we're coming back for the Business Insight. All right, back to business insight. So this is a this is an interesting one, and this is a little bit more just related to larger macroeconomic um, factors and statuses in the world right now, coupled with a little bit of personal experience um, and just some things that I'm seeing. And I just thought it was a really interesting concept to kind of talk through because I think some people may see this in their own life, um, just kind of personally, financially. If you are a small business owner and you maybe have, you know, you're in real estate, you're in, you know, heavy equipment, um, or you're starting to think about a business that's capital intensive, uh, 
some very interesting stuff is occurring right now. So over the last, um, let's see, since 2019, I owned a small private uh, car dealership. We primarily sold kind of high-end exotic cars. Um, it was kind of just a, a personal hobby slash interest of mine that I wanted to learn about. Um, so we started a business, ran it. Um, first several years were really good, really fun. And then the economic environment changed pretty substantially. That essentially made the business model almost impossible to make money or even break even if you didn't have kind of the massive dealership model of, you know, services, warranties, like where you can make money elsewhere. And it was a combination of of basically two, three things. <clears throat> One is um, interest rates, right? And I'll come back to that in a little bit. But basically, in 2021, we were basically functioning with a 0% interest rate environment, which meant any commercial debt that you used as leverage um, to buy cars, which basically every dealership uses credit lines to buy inventory, and then they sell them before the interest starts to rack up. That's just that's the way that 98% of dealerships work. Um, so you were basically having 3 4% notes, right? Which means you could hold a car for 60, 90, 180 days, and it would cost you maybe five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand, fifteen hundred bucks to hold these cars. Now your profit margins usually way more than that. So you make money on every car. Um and second was there was very stable asset prices and you really understood, especially in the auto world, like how car prices changed over time. Right. Um However, 2021, 2022, 2023, interest rates went from 0%, which was about 4% for actual like credit, to um, somewhere in the neighborhood of we were getting interest rates of 12, 16, 18% for commercial credit, right? And these weren't like the way that those things work is you don't just lock in 4% and that's what your credit line is forever. It's like it, it varies with the Fed overnight lending rate, right? Plus, the insane volatility of asset prices, and I'm going to come back to real estate in a minute because it's also a great example, of uh, cars, especially used cars, especially high-end used cars, was like something we've never seen, right? In the span of about, let's call it 24 months, we saw car prices go up and these are used cars, right, which are generally follow a very steady depreciation curve, went up 30 40% and then went down 30 40%, right? So if you're buying and selling cars on a 5 to 10% margin and asset prices over the span of 60, 90, 180, 365 days are changing that dramatically, it becomes very hard to buy inventory, right? And car sales, auto sales, any sales game is the name of... it's. It's basically a name of uh, a game of quantity, right? How many units can you flip and how can you take that profit and return that capital over and over? And so what we've seen in the car industry is highly unstable uh, prices. And right now we're kind of on the decline of prices are continuing to drop continuously. Um, And interest rates, especially for used cars, um, for buying used cars on credit, commercial credit, are astronomical. And so right now, it's it's almost impossible to buy and sell a commodity-based car 
So like your standard Toyota, Chevy, et cetera, and make money unless you're at a new dealership with incentives or you have massive warranty packages, et cetera. And so what's been interesting is I actually um, exited my position in our business uh, at the end of the year last year just because I kind of saw the environment. It was like, hey, I'm not really interested in continuing to fight this hard to basically make zero dollars. And there's no real, there's probably a 24 to 36 month window before things actually become the situation where you can be profitable. And so what's been really interesting to watch is since then, I have seen probably six or seven of the large players in that space close their doors and just shut down. Because that's what's happening is these interest rates and asset deflations that's occurring right now just makes it impossible to make money depending on your business model. But this is translating across a lot of industries, right? Anything that has debt and debt that's tied to assets that is not fixed rate is really struggling. And the biggest thing in this is commercial real estate, right? A large portion of commercial real estate is based on uh, term notes that the interest rates will have to change, right? So a lot of commercial real estate is not like, hey, 30-year mortgages at a fixed rate. A lot of it is variable interest rate, right? Now, that's great if you buy and you peg your business and your occupancy rates and your cap rates when, you know, asset prices are low and interest rates are high, but when you kind of do it in the opposite, when asset prices are high and interest rates are low, and then the environment changes, right? Real estate values are down 20, 30% depending on the market. Um, interest rates are up, let's call it three, 400%, which, you know, a jump from 2% interest rate to seven doesn't seem that much, but that means your, your monthly contribution on that note has probably doubled, maybe tripled, depending on what the situation is, or you have a big balloon payment due. It's really causing a lot of stress in the system. Um, and we're going to continue to see these businesses that are interest rate and asset price heavy or pegged to those things that really rely on that for, for generating value in the business. They're going to continue to struggle. Um, so like large equipment, sales places, commercial real estate, auto, um, any, basically any used, or any kind of second resale position business like that is, is really starting to feel the squeeze now. Now, hopefully interest rates come down by the end of the year and we start to see things shift back in the direction of lower interest rates and asset appreciation. But we're kind of in that crunch time where all those things are really starting to add up and people are just not seeing an end in sight. So um, just an interesting business insight for the day. Um, just always interesting to watch economic cycles. And I learned a, a big lesson. It was, you could kind of see it coming and you had to start to position yourself appropriately. But at some point you just kind of make the decision of like, Hey, let's wait till the economic environment changes. So that's the business insight. Another quick break. And we'll be back for the last segment of the show. All right, last segment of the show today. Uh, what am I learning today? And this is more of a uh, just something that I've been really focused on, um, and something even today I'm kind of just really chewing on is you can only control your response to something, and that's where the power lies. And this this has been something I think that 
I've been really working on the last, I don't know, probably six months, but it's really kind of been more, more apparent to me in the last several weeks of, you know, just people will say things to you and about you your entire life. Right. And whatever people say, the only power it ever has is your response to it. And a couple examples of this that have happened. Um, I was, I was at a basketball event the other day and, uh, somebody just like jokingly said something kind of like quasi derogatory, but just like, if you've ever played basketball, people talk a lot of crap. Um, somebody said something and they were like, Oh, you're not going to respond to that. And I was like, why? They're like, well, you said something like you don't need to stand up for yourself. And I was like, I, there's nothing valid in what he said. So like, I I don't need to respond to it. Like he can think whatever he wants and say whatever he wants. But like the only reason he's saying that is to get a response out of me. So if I don't respond, I have all the power. Um, and so that was a situation. There was another situation where somebody said something, um, you know, that was just really not reflective of, of kind of who I am and how I feel, uh, about myself. Um, and they were like, man, doesn't that upset you? Like, are you going to call him and like, tell him that you know what he said? I'm going to be like, no, like, well, why not? Don't you feel like you need to defend your reputation? And it's like, it's, again, more a reflection on them than it is on me, right? I, I don't need to give any of the words that they say power in the world. Um, and so just focus on controlling your own response because everything else is just energy that you're pouring out into the world that doesn't really make a difference in your own life. So that's the what am I learning today. Um, daily win. My goal was to pump out a 100 episodes of the pod in 2024. Uh, we're on pace. This is episode seven. Uh, another one will go out this weekend and another one will go out early next week. So that'll be nine in January, which means we are on pace. Um, February, I'm hoping to pump out another nine. So we're trying to hit like eight to nine a month so we can hit our hundred for the year. So pretty excited about that, that we're three and a half weeks in and we are on pace for the goal. Uh, daily learning lesson, you know, don't forget to enjoy the ride and that remember a great story requires hard times. Uh, and I was just thinking about this with, I was, I was chatting with one of my, uh, my athletes the other day and, you know, they're thinking about kind of the end of their college career and going to the NBA. And we're just kind of talking about like, you know, the injuries and, you know, kind of the rough path that they've had and, and just some of the like, you know, hard days of really tough losses and games they just haven't played well and seasons they haven't played well and kind of they're now like maybe potentially getting ready to to go to the combine um, and potentially get drafted. And I was just like, man, like enjoy the days that like stuff just really sucks because when you get to the end, the great stories aren't like, oh yeah, like I was super talented and everything was easy and I just kind of showed up and I achieved the dream and like, eh, it was nothing, right? Nobody, nobody likes that story, right? Every story requires hard times. And if you think about all the great fantasy books or sci-fi books or, you know, just real stories of people is it's like, it's the hard times that make the story great, and your life is, is one shot, and why not build a great story? So really enjoy the ride, and remember that the hard times make the great story. And the other perspective is, like, when you get to the hardest part, 
that's the hardest part. Everything else after that is gravy, right? Everything else from there is easy. So um, kind of keep those perspectives as you're kind of building your own story and writing your own story. Um, you know, don't be afraid of the hard times. Don't forget to enjoy the ride. So that's it. I'm Dr. Brad. I'll see you guys later.